All right. Well, welcome to River City. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to be with y'all for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, uh, especially welcome to you. We're glad that you join us for worship, and we'd love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And and like Aaron was saying, small groups is one of the best ways to do that. And, uh, just get, get in people's lives and. And so we'd love to invite you into that. Uh, excited as well, continue studying our, the book of Philippians. We've been in that for the last couple of months here. But if you're just joining us for the first time or you have been gone, uh, let me just briefly catch you up on where we've been and then we'll dive into our passage this morning at the end of chapter three. And so uh, like we've talked about, Philippians is a, a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the, city of Pil- in the city of Philippi. It was the very first church that was planted on the European continent and And Paul planted this church about 10 years prior to writing this letter. So they're about 10 years old as a church as he writes this letter to them. And and, uh, Philippians is is kind of a fan favorite for a lot of people as they read the Bible, because in a lot of ways it's just full of thanksgiving and joy and encouragement. It's just like one of those like uplifting kind of letters in a lot of ways. And and the reason why that is is because since the, since the very beginning, the, this church has been characterized by a love for God and a desire for others to know Him. They've been characterized by a sacrificial generosity with their finances and, and just by faithfulness to the gospel and to the Word of God. And, and they just actually appreciated Paul, which is more than he could say for a bunch of the other churches that he helped start. And so, uh, in fact, the, the reason why he's writing this letter to them now is because uh, they sent one of their leaders to go check on him. They heard he was in prison, and so they sent somebody to go check on him to take, see if he had any needs and to be able to take care of him if, if there's anything that he needed. And, and so whenever Paul thinks about them, he's encouraged, he's full of joy, there's a lot of thankfulness and gladness for them. But what you see is that even in the midst of all the reasons why Paul has to be thankful for and encouraged by what God's doing in this church and where they're at spiritually is that what you see throughout the letters that he wants them to keep growing in their faith. He, he wants the good news of the gospel and the person, the work of Jesus to keep transforming their attitudes and actions and perspectives. There's, there's this very settled reality in the midst of Paul's letters that, that they haven't arrived yet, that neither is he. In fact, you're going to see that reiterated again this morning, that, that they haven't arrived yet, and that neither is Paul, neither have we. And so instead of just patting him on the back and encouraging them, he does that, but he also as well continues to, to urges them to keep pressing into the often uncomfortable process of growing up in your faith and continuing to mature. And so what he knows is that God's not done transforming them yet. He's not done uh, making them in to, the, to reflect the person and the work of Jesus quite yet. And so as we began chapter 3, what we saw is how one of the things that was really going to threaten their ongoing growth and their ability to keep maturing was this temptation that we all face to, to kind of relate to God on the basis of our own merits, to kind of put together a spiritual resume before God of our accomplishments and the things that we've done right as a kind of spiritual resume as to why he should kind of, he should approve of us. And we saw, however, last week that the problem with that isn't just that God is wildly unimpressed with our self-reliant spiritual resumes, but, but that what happens is when we, when our confidence before him is rooted in ourselves how well or not well we're doing before him, what, what it really only produces in us is self-righteousness and pride and shame and anxiety. That's, that's the only stuff that that produces in us. And it actually keeps us from uh, increasingly reflecting the kind of unifying and humble others-focused lives that Paul spent all chapter 2 showing us that Jesus lived out and calls us to. And, and so instead what we see Paul doing is he urges us not only to reject our sin, but to reject our reliance on ourselves as the, as the way that the means by which we relate to God and instead to put our confidence before God in what Jesus has done for us. And what he shows us throughout the passage is that doing that 
is not only the way in with God, but that's actually the way to access the kind of power you need from him to actually live the life he calls you to. That You don't actually have the ability on your own to live in the new resurrected lives that he calls you to. You need his spirit's power in you to do it. And so the only way to get that power is to, is, is to rely completely on him. And, and so that leads us to our passage this morning because what we're going to see Paul doing is he's describing the kind of attitude and perspective and actions that characterize someone who's not just uh, been made right with God by faith in Jesus, but by, but, but by somebody who's actually growing up in their faith, somebody who's maturing in their faith. What you see throughout Paul's letters is that he doesn't just want to make converts to faith. He wants people to grow up in their faith, to grow in maturity, to increasingly reflect the attitudes and actions and perspectives of Jesus in their lives each and every day. And, and so what he's going to do in our passage this morning is he's going to describe the kind of the things that characterize somebody who is growing in maturity. And what you see is that, what we're going to see is that that stands in really sharp contrast to the, the Judaizers. That was a group he warned the Philippians about the early part of chapter 3. And see, they measured their spiritual maturity based on how well they were doing with uh, basically uh, on, on the basis of how well they were kind of adhering to all the Old Testament laws and rules and regulations. And, and the reality is that they thought they were doing a really good job. They, they had this perspective, you read throughout the New Testament letters, that they had arrived, right? That they were like, everybody else needed to get on board. They had figured it out. They, had, they were doing what they needed to do, and that God was probably pretty happy with them. And you see, and, and they would have looked at Paul's resume, this resume he lists last week of all his accomplishments and his pedigree. They, they would have looked at that list as the epitome of somebody who is spiritually mature. And yet what you see is that Paul chucks that resume altogether. And in fact, he, the, the kind of attitude and actions that, that characterize someone who's actually growing in maturity, someone who's truly mature, they're actually marked by the very opposite perspective. They're marked by this attitude that we haven't arrived yet, that we're not yet the people God's making us to be, that we still have a lot of room to grow, and yet at the same time, a very settled refusal to stay that way to keep pressing in to the work that God's doing in us, to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the renewing work God's doing in us by his spirit. And so that's where we're headed this morning. Paul's going to show us what maturity really looks like. He's going to highlight some things that get in the way of our maturity and some things that we need to keep choosing to do in order to actually grow in maturity. So with that in mind, let's pray and, and we'll uh, dive into God's word this morning. God, thanks so much for our time in your word. And God, we just humbly ask that you use it for good in our hearts and lives. And God, we need you to do that. God, I don't have anything impressive or powerful to say other than what's in your word this morning. And so, uh, God, we need you to cause your word to shape us and to be good news to us. And we should pray as well this morning as we think about uh, just the intentionality it takes to grow up in our faith. God, we should pray that you'd be uh, rooting out, like you'd be just like short-circuiting any sense of condemnation that we might have, but instead you'd be gracious to give us a just like a gospel-centered conviction. We need to be calling us to life with you and to maturity in you, and that you do that out of love for you, not guilt and shame. And so we need you for all of that, and we just pray that you'd be gracious to do it in us, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, like I said, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Uh, I'm going to start by reading the last couple of verses that we ended on last week because it kind of is this transition to where we're headed this week. Uh, Paul begins here in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 10 this way. He says, I want to know Christ and to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. 
Not that I've already obtained this or I've already arrived at my goal, he says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining towards what's ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, well, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained Join together in the following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And, it's, and, we, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. All right, well, there's certainly a lot going on in our passage, but I think it might be helpful to kind of divide it into halves. And what you see in the first half of the passage is that what Paul's trying to do is he's outlining the kind of attitudes and perspective that characterize somebody who is mature in their faith. He, he writes in verse 10 about how he wants to know Jesus and to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his suffering and become like him in his death. And what he's saying there, he's, just, he's saying, I don't just want to know Jesus. He says, I want to be like him in every way, in my life, in my death, everything in between, whatever it costs, I want to be like him. I want to reflect his attitudes, his actions, his perspectives, his power. I want that in my own life. I want to honor him that way. But then what you see is that three times in the following two verses, what he says is that I'm not there yet. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this. Or I haven't already arrived at my goal. Verse 13, I, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. You see, Paul's attitude here is not some kind of faux humility. It's not like this humble brag where he's like, oh, well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm doing pretty good, but I, yeah, I've really got, I've still got tons of room to grow. Like, that's not what's going on there. And it's also not this kind of woe is me thing where he's like, I've been at this for years. I'm not making, like, I still got so much to grow. I guess I'm just endlessly doomed to keep struggling. Like, it's, it's neither of those things. What you see in Paul's, Paul's, uh, Paul's attitude there is just an accurate self-assessment, Right? He says that the goal is to be like Jesus, to reflect his attitudes, his actions, his perspective, to live as he lived. And he, Paul says, I'm not there yet. You see, I think what happens is a lot of times is that instead of measuring our maturity by, uh, by comparing ourselves to Jesus, what we do is we measure our maturity by comparing ourselves to other Christians. And we think like, well, there's certainly people who are farther ahead than me, but like, there's also plenty of people that like, I feel like I'm, I'm a little farther along then. And, and so I must be doing good, right? Like we're, we're not at the top, we're not in the, at the bottom, we're right in the middle, that's where we want to be great, right? We're, like we're doing just fine. And we just kind of end up coasting spiritually. But what Paul says is that the goal is not to look like other Christians. The goal is to look like Jesus. And when we compare ourselves to him, what we find is that we're, we're not there yet. We haven't arrived. We've still got a lot of room to grow. And so what Paul's saying is that true maturity is, is characterized by a realization that you're not actually mature yet. That's one of the marks of maturity, that you know you're not there, that you haven't arrived. 
But what Paul says is that true maturity doesn't stop with just a realization that you haven't arrived yet. It, it moves on. It, it, as well, it, in, it involves this refusal to stay there. He goes on in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or already arrived at my goal. He says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. See, Paul looks at his life. And he looks at Jesus and he sees the disparities that are there still. He sees all the ways that, that he doesn't mirror him quite yet. And the thing that's so important to see is that Paul is not crushed by that. He's not defeated by that. He's motivated by it. I think it'd be easy for you and I to kind of look at a guy like Paul who literally like wrote half the New Testament, planted like most of the churches that are there, and be like, if that dude hasn't arrived, like what is the point, right? Like I'm clearly, we're, I'm not close, we're not getting, like if, if that's not going on, and to kind of give up. But Paul doesn't have that kind of a perspective. Instead, you see that he's, one commentator puts it this way, he says, Paul's not hobbled by the fact that he doesn't yet measure up to Jesus. He's driven by it. And the reason why Paul's not crushed by his failures and by the ways that after all the years that he's still been following Jesus, that he still isn't measure up to him, is because Paul is not working for his approval. He's not working for God's approval. He's working out of God's approval. He writes in verse 12, I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. He says, I'm already his. Jesus already took hold of me. When I was persecuting the church and hunting down Christians, Jesus reached out and he grabbed me and he made me his own. And he revealed himself to me. So instead of rejecting him, I might instead reflect him in everything that I say and do. He says, that's my motivation. That's what's driving me. And again, you see, this is the difference between religion and the gospel. You see, religiosity motivates us by this attitude that says, if I obey, then I'll be accepted. And it's motivations towards obedience and towards this external maturity that's motivated by fear and insecurity because we're trying to like, get something from God or show him that we're worth enough. But the gospel's altogether different. The gospel says, I'm accepted, and that's why I obey. God's accepted of me. He's loved me. He's chosen me. He's made me his own, and I don't deserve that. And that's why I choose to obey. That's why I give myself to that. You see, the, the gospel's this endless well of motivation that empowers us to keep giving ourselves humbly and wholeheartedly to the work God's doing in us to make us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus. And so what Paul says is that true maturity, it's marked by admitting that you're not mature yet, but also that you refuse to stay that way. They keep pressing on to growing. And I love how in verse 15, Paul says, uh, just as a heads up, uh, that's not my definition of maturity, that's God's. Right? He says at the end of, he says, verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take that view of things, take such a view of things. And he says, if on some point you think differently, well, then God will make that clear to you as well. I love it. He's just like, I'm not even going to argue with you, right? Like, this is the way it is, and God's just going to show you if, if you have some problems with that, right? And so the first half of the passage, Paul, Paul lays out this kind of mindset of a spiritually mature person, right? And he shows us the perspective that characterizes the way that they approach their life as a follower of Jesus. But what you see in the second half of the passage is that what he does is he kind of highlights a number of things that, that are going to short-circuit our growth, our spiritual growth. Some things that are going to both help it to happen, but also some things that are going to get in the way of it. And the first thing that he, that he highlights is in verse 13, he says that, it, that as he's pursuing this growth, he says that, he has, that, that the thing, one of the things that's going to get in the way is dwelling on the past. 
Paul says that forgetting what is behind, that that's key to pursuing, to pressing into this Christ-like maturity and growing in that. And let me just clarify that for a minute because what Paul's not articulating, he's not arguing for some kind of like spiritual amnesia here to kind of forget all our mistakes or our past or whatever. But see, in the Bible, forgetting isn't about failing to remember something. It's about choosing to no longer be influenced or affected by something. Hebrews chapter 10, the, uh, the writer of Hebrews, he, he reminds us about God's promise that he'll remember our sins no more. When by faith we put our, our trust in Jesus. And what he's not saying there is that God's just going to have, have like some kind of conveniently bad memory about like all your mistakes and rebellion. Like that's, that's not what he's talking about there. But what he's saying is that God's not going to allow our past to affect how he views and relates to us. You see, and so Paul's not saying that we should ignore or erase our past, but that we shouldn't dwell on it. We shouldn't allow it to hinder our pursuit of Jesus. And I think that that reality is both for the good and the bad in our past. You see, I think it would have been really easy for Paul, uh, a guy who literally spent uh, a number of years of his life opposing Jesus ferociously. I mean, he literally spent time hunting down Christians, overseeing their imprisonment and executions. Like, it would have been really easy for a guy like that to be crippled by guilt and shame when he thought about the past, to, to feel like no matter how much his life reflected Jesus in the moment, that, that what he had done in the past was somehow more than God's grace could handle, and, and that, that instead he just needed to ignore or reject or just try to, like, forget about whatever had happened. But but that's not what's going on with him. That's not the way that he looks at his past. You, you see in, 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 in his letter to, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, he, he writes about his past this way. He, he says it this way. He's, he says, here's this trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him. See, Paul, Paul's not ignorant of his past. He, he understands the way that he opposed Jesus and the problem that that was. But as well, you see, is that Paul, he's allowed God to reframe his past. And instead of it being this like crushing weight and burden that he keeps looking back on that's just like just endless guilt, what he sees is that it's actually this powerful evidence of God's grace in his life. And he sees, God, you overcame all of my sin. And so your grace is even more incredible. And the more Paul realizes how messed up he was and how much he needed Jesus, God's grace just gets better and better and better to him. And you see that when you read his letters over time. You see, but it's not just our past sin and our failures that we need to forget. It's our past successes as well. One pastor sums it up this way. He says, throughout the Christian life, we experience various wins. And those wins can be all beautiful reminders of God's provision, of God's power, but they can also make us smug and lazy if we try to rest on those temporary victories. He says, those memories are great, but they are not a suitable power for the growth needed today. See, God's grace is good news to us in our past. And the ways that he's empowered us to overcome sin, that is good. But that doesn't mean that like you're good on your own now. You need him just as much today as you did yesterday. And you need his empowering, renewing grace just as much today as you did the day before. And so we're never in this spot where we can just rest on where we're at. But we always need to keep pressing into him and what he's doing in us, relying on him 
But Paul goes on in verse 13 because it's not just forgetting what behind, forgetting what's behind that's important to enabling our helping us to grow. He says it's straining towards what is ahead. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we could all get on the team of like passive spiritual transformation. You know, like everybody's on the team of passive income, right? Like everyone's like, oh, what could I do so that I could do nothing and make a ton of money? That would be great, right? I think we'd all be on the team of like, what could. If I could just do nothing and keep growing spiritually, that would be amazing, right? Like, that would be so nice. I could just kind of show up at church on Sunday, hear some great sermon, and then, like, everything was, like, hunky-dory. Like, wow, I'm just, I just look like Jesus. It's amazing, right? Kind of like the ultimate, like, Jesus take the wheel perspective, right, about life. We could all be on that team, I think, right? Unfortunately, uh, when you read the Bible, you don't find that kind of a mindset anywhere in all of Scripture. Nobody stumbles into godliness. It just doesn't happen. We drift towards uh, sin. We drift towards self-reliance. We drift towards rebellion. We don't drift towards the Lord. That's not how that happens. There's no autopilot mode for us in the Christian life. Instead, what you see constantly throughout God's Word are the exhortations to run and wrestle and work and suffer and endure and fight and resist and persevere and strive for godliness. There's this attitude of like anything but passivity in that. In fact, the word that Paul uses that's translated as strain here, it was used often to describe an athlete who had committed like every fiber of their being towards pursuing the prize or the goal that they were after. Everything. You see, becoming more like Jesus, it doesn't happen by accident. It requires real intentionality, actual effort, relentless effort, but it's so important you see this. It's not like a pull yourself, by, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of effort. It's a gospel-driven, grace-driven kind of effort. Remember verse 12, Paul says, I press on to take hold of that which Jesus, for which Jesus already took hold of me. Verse 16, he goes on, he says, let us live up to, let us be like the thing that we're supposed to be. He says, let us live up to what we've already, already attained. See, Paul isn't fueled by fear and insecurity or guilt and shame. He's fueled by the grace of God. He, he doesn't take that grace for granted. He gets that although he should have been rejected by God, he's been adopted by God. And that transforms his attitude and perspective. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, which means that he is a follower of Jesus. And he says, and his grace to me was not without effect. He says, no, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So what Paul says is, I have received a gift I could not have earned and absolutely did not deserve. And so I'm going to give every fiber of my being back to the purpose for which the one who saved me made me. I want to give everything to being who he called me to be and who he saved me to be. I want to give everything to that. And he refuses to just have a lackadaisical approach to his faith. See, the reality is if we want to keep growing up spiritually, we need that same kind of an attitude. It's an attitude that just refuses to say like, well, you know, we're doing okay. We're probably fine. It's, we're going to need to have an attitude that says that whatever it costs, we're going to press into following Jesus. You see, getting up early so you can spend time reading your Bible and talking with God and focusing on him, that is inconvenient and hard because sleep is great. 
And prioritize and gathering for worship with God's people on Sundays or being in relationship with people in the context of small groups, that is inconvenient and often difficult because there's all kinds of other things in our lives that are easy to get in the way of that. And choosing to put the good of others and the glory of God ahead of our own desires is hard. And choosing to say no to sin and yes to Jesus is hard. None of that is easy. None of it, we don't drift towards any of that. But all of it's worth it. Because God's grace is that beautiful and that compelling. And knowing Jesus is a better reward. It's more life-giving. And so we reject this kind of spiritual apathy and laziness, and instead we choose to relentlessly give ourselves back to the transforming work God's doing in us by His Spirit. And so if we want to mature in our faith, we're going to need to stop dwelling on the past and keep pressing into, into the life of humble growth that's ahead. But, but that's not all. You see, as Paul wraps up chapter 3, what you see in verses 17 through 19 is that he goes on to highlight how the examples that we follow, the people that we are influenced by, the people that we look to, that that's a really important part of whether or not... like. We're going to actually have success in doing that. That they're either going to help us to mature in our faith or they're going to hinder us from doing that. You see, throughout the New Testament, the writers of the, of the Bible, they, they urge us to look at the example of Jesus and the example of those who reflect him. All of chapter 2, we saw Paul uh, offering us the example of Jesus and himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus, people to look to. Because the reality is, like Aaron talked about a few weeks ago, is that so much of our faith in Christ and our growing up in our maturity, it comes from imitating the faith of others. There is not like this situation list for every situation in life throughout the Bible. You need people that are looking to, people that are following Jesus and love him. You need the example of people in your life that are like a little farther along and are applying God's word to their lives and the situations that you might find yourselves in. You need that. That's why it's so important to be a part of a church and a part of a small group, to actually be in people's lives and to be in relationship with the people who are trying to press into following Jesus. You need those things. And what Paul says is that what you want to look for in a good example isn't just what people say about Jesus. It's not just the theology they have or the doctrine that they might espouse. But what you want to look for in a good example, he says, is, is those who live as Paul does which is a reflection of Jesus, who live as Jesus did. He says, keep your eyes on those people. And he's not just saying, just me. He spent all chapter 2, Epaphroditus, Timothy, Jesus, others. Keep your eye on people who live like Jesus, whose lives increasingly reflect him. Because what he's going to go on to do in the, in the coming verses, he contrasts that kind of example, a, a Christ-like life, not just a words, but a Christ-like life. He contrasts that with this dangerously bad example of those he, he talks about in verse 18 who are enemies of the cross. He says in verse 19 that their destiny is destruction, that their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. And we don't know exactly who Paul is warning them about. Maybe it's the Judaizers from the first part of chapter 3, or maybe it's someone else. We don't know. But whoever it is who he's talking about are people who identify themselves as followers of Jesus, but whose lives reveal a consuming desire for something other than him. Whose lives reveal that, yeah, you know what, I say I follow Jesus, but my life does not actually reflect him. 
And they're ruled by a desire for something else. D.A. Carson sums it up this way. He says, instead of accepting a self-denying way of discipleship, they have made their physical desires their God. They boast in what was in fact shameful, and they set their minds on earthly things. And that meant that instead of finding in the cross both their salvation and their way of life, they were on a path that could lead only to destruction. See, here's the deal, church, is that What you do and the way that you live, it reveals the things that you love. What you do and the way you live, it reveals the things you really love, the things that are most important to you, it reveals what you really believe is true. That's how it always works for everybody, not just Christians, for all of us. You know, actions speak louder than words. Of course they do. Words are cheap. Actions are expensive. What Paul says is that when you find people who call themselves Christians, but whose lives, who, who live and think and act just like the world around them, who are constantly looking for ways to justify their own desires and their sinful behaviors, who are looking to find loopholes and to find ways out of obedience to God's commands and his word, and are encouraging others to do the same, what you know is that that is not a good example. It looks like a good example because it's way easier to say like, oh, this person is saying that I can just do what what I already want to do? That they're affirming the desires I already have? That's great. I already want to do that stuff. This is much easier. But we see in Scripture, Jesus calls us to die to ourselves. And the reality that what's deep inside of us isn't something that should be brought out and paraded, but it's like something that we need to put to death. You see, the apple, that, the, the apple that kind of people who live that way offer to you, it's a poison apple. Paul says their destiny is destruction, and spoiler alert, that's not what you're after. It's not what you want. In contrast, Paul says that at this, these enemies of the cross, they might espouse an idea that they follow Jesus, but their lives reveal that they're set on earthly things. The thing that matters most is their own pleasure and their own security and their own ability to do whatever they want. And he says, stop looking at those examples. He says, what you want to look for is people who follow, whose lives reveal that the thing that matters most, the thing where their eyes are set is on eternity. He says in verse 20, he says, in contrast to those whose, whose minds are set on earthly things, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And he says, we eagerly await a savior from there, our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what marks a good example is someone who has an eternal mindset, whose priorities reflect the values and priorities of eternity and the king of eternity. Who live as citizens, not primarily of this world, but as citizens of heaven. So Paul's saying, right? The end of chapter one, we talked about how the Philippians, they were very proud of the Roman citizenship that they had. And Paul says, You can't live as though that's your primary allegiance. You can't live as though this world is the thing that matters the most. He says your primary allegiance, your highest calling is to live as citizens of heaven. You are foreign ambassadors sent by the king as his people to reflect his person and his values, his priorities, who live, whose lives and his words reflect the king that you serve and who honor him. And so Paul says, look for people like that. Look for people 
who are committed, whose lives reflect the ideal that the thing that matters most is heaven. And they live as citizens of God's eternal kingdom. That's the thing that drives their lives. See, and I think one of the things that helps us to keep an eternal mindset and to live as citizens of heaven is that's why we take communion all the time here. See, communion is this reminder for us that God is the one who came to live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that our sin deserved so that we might have an eternal future with him. And what we're remembering in communion is that what that eternal future cost was his body and his blood broken and shed for us on the cross. That was the cost of that eternal future. And so communion is not something that makes us right with God and doesn't change our status and our standing with him. Communion is this chance for us to remember to remind ourselves of the magnitude of God's grace and how much it cost him and to remind ourselves of the beauty of the gospel and to have our hearts fueled up with a love and a gratitude for him that like motivates our lives given relentlessly to him. And religiosity, it can never do that. See, religion is just always motivated by fear and insecurity, but the gospel says you are already been accepted and you should not have been. And so you should be full of joy and gratitude for all that God's done for you, and to keep coming back to the good news of the cross and the good news of the gospel, let that fuel a glad obedience. Let it fuel a relentless attitude that says, I'm not there yet. And because God's grace is so beautiful, I refuse to make light of it. And so if you're here this morning and you put your faith in Jesus and you said, he's the one that makes me right with God, and I want to live for his glory, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it not because you're perfect, but because Jesus was perfect on your behalf. Let it fuel a glad obedience to you, for you. But if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, and if, and if doing that's even something you want to do, then I just want you to know how welcome you are here at River City and in this community. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals. He is not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that says, I refuse to rely on anything but you, Jesus. That what I need is you entirely. And so if that's you for the first time this morning, then, then I encourage you, go back and take communion. Do it in joy. For all of us, as, as we do, as we sing and worship and remember the gospel together in song this morning, wherever you're at, I want to encourage you to talk with God. Like I said, some of you are here this morning and you need to say yes to him for the first time. You've been relying on yourself. You've been relying on anything but him or even been rejecting him altogether. And what you need is to say yes to him for the first time and to repent of your sin and to repent of your self-righteousness. But many of you are here and what you're realizing is that you just haven't been growing that much. You've been following Jesus for a long time and you look back and you're like, I kind of feel like I'm basically in the same spot I have been for a long time. And you're not making progress in your faith. And I just want to encourage you this morning to ask God to help you to see what's holding you back. Maybe it's that you're just dwelling on the past. Maybe your past, what you've done or what's been done to you. Maybe you're dwelling on your past successes and you feel like, well, things were going fine. I don't really, like, I'm, I'm kind of got this. I'm on coast mode. Or maybe you're just apathetic about your growth because you've been comparing yourself to other people and you think like, well, 
We're not in the front. We're not in the back. We're doing all right. Like, let's just keep on going. Or maybe you're just resisting the hard work that you know it's going to take to keep growing, and you're just like, I, I, I know what it's going to take, and I, I'm just not ready to say yes to that. Or maybe you're just trying really hard, but your motivations are messed up, and you're motivated by fear and insecurity and guilt, not by God's grace being good news to you, and it's cripplingly you because you realize you have no power to do it, and you just feel stuck, so you give up. Or maybe you've just been following or listening to some bad examples or no examples at all. You've been trying to lone ranger following Jesus, and what you realize is that that's not working. Or you've been listening to the people who say, like, oh, you're doing just fine. Everything's great. You don't really need to keep growing. And that feels all right for a while because it feels easier than saying that you, that, you, that you need to keep growing and that it's worth it to do that. I want to encourage you this morning. Wherever you're at, reject the idea that, you, that it's fine to stay there. God loves you in the midst of your insufficiency, but he loves you enough to not allow you to stay there. So you need to keep pressing in to the things God's doing in you and refusing to stay where you're at spiritually. And just as a reminder, like that's why it's so important to be a part of a church, to be a part of a small group, to be a part of a real community that's actually going to help you grow. Because you need examples and you need others because growing up in your faith is hard. And you're not going to do it by yourself and you need others. But wherever you're at this morning, as you think about whatever next step you need to take, I just want to encourage you to keep coming back to the good news of the gospel. You see, Jesus took hold of you. You didn't take hold of him. And he invites you out of a confidence to say yes to the reason he took hold of you, to be his image-bearing people in the world. That's good news. That's a life full of purpose and calling you can't find anywhere else. And so choose not to try to work for God's approval, but because you're working from it, to keep giving yourselves back to him. Saying, God, you gave yourself wholly for me. Help me to keep giving all of me wholeheartedly back to you, to being who you've called me to be. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful this morning that uh, in the midst of the call we have to be like you increasingly, God, that you don't call us to that out of duty and obligation. You don't call us to out of shame or fear and security, but you do it out of love and joy. And you call us to be a people who, out of a love for you and out of seeing how much grace we've received, to give ourselves back to you wholeheartedly. And so we just humbly ask God, would the gospel be good news that empowers us to keep growing up into maturity, recognizing that we're not mature yet and refusing to stay that way. Now, because your grace is worth giving ourselves wholeheartedly to.